episode of the Art vs. Commerce podcast. This week is with Ethan Goldman. He's uh, in creative development for TV and film. He's been doing it for his whole career now, which spans, uh, I guess he got out of school in 96, and he's been figuring stuff out in this realm since then. We go through his whole chronology in the episode, talking about how he eventually landed at, at where he is now acting as a creative consultant for multiple big networks. He spent a lot of time in the music space at VH1, MTV, um, and really being at the forefront of a lot of genre-leading shows and the types of changes that have happened in the media landscape that have affected, uh, you know, that have rung outwards in terms of its effect on on the whole industry because he was a part of shows that, um, you know, ended up redefining how things were done depending on the era in which they came out. So I've always been interested in talking to people that are on the development side who are definitely creative uh, people who who enjoy making stuff and curious personally how that type of desire to create manifests on the development side and and in that world and it was great talking with Ethan about that because he you know he's very well spoken and was able to really articulate why he prefers living in that world of just working on the ideas and being in a calm environment before you know, the chaos of production starts, that for him it's really enjoyable to take the time to sit and think about what things can be. And I, I totally get that, and it, it, it makes sense. I think that I'm better suited in a production environment, and it's so interesting, and, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk to someone who really favors uh, the development stage, and it was great, especially someone with his type of background and experience. Uh, like I said, MTV, VH1, um, he also spent years uh, at Warrior Poets, which is Morgan Spurlock's production company. So, you know, clearly someone who has been within the media landscape for a long time and even just hearing his opinions on the current state of affairs with either uh, YouTube's rise and then also Netflix's rise and how that's impacting the industry. He, he is, it's clear that he thinks about those types of things all day and that they are a part of what makes his career continue and, and move forward and that figuring out how to manage the ever-changing landscape is how he stays ahead and stays on top and ultimately is in the best position to make really great content and fun stories and be and be a storyteller which is it which is essentially what he is which is really cool because I don't know if I was generally associating someone in his position as that and it was great to talk to him and realize no no you, this guy is a, is a bona fide storyteller and this is how he goes about doing it which is awesome just some housekeeping if you can like and comment on iTunes that will help spread the uh, conversation and the show further we're on all social media channels at AVC pod that's our handle and for any inquiries questions or uh, guest ideas you can email uh, this show's producer Courtney Ryan at Courtney at avcpod.com. So yeah, another week, another good conversation, this time with Ethan Goldman. As always, thanks for being here. with a production company and the third is with um, sort of a, a creative ad and branding agency where I'm developing some digital properties as well as a, a scripted long form piece. Um, so I've sort of been able to create my own 
um, ideal day bouncing around between these three offices and, uh, you know, occasionally working from home or popping into the network. Um, but it's given me a lot of creative freedom and flexibility, which I'm enjoying. Yeah, that sounds cool. So you, you physically go from spot to spot throughout the day? Yeah. The, the network doesn't require me to come in except for meetings. Um, and the production company, Big Fish Entertainment, is based in Midtown right around the corner from, actually right down the street from uh, MTV Networks where I'm doing some consulting. So those are sort of the the two that I'm bouncing between. Well, that's uh, conveniently uh, located next to each other. Yeah, it is. And like I said, there's not. Uh, a lot of in-person at MTV. It's mostly developing ideas for them, yeah, firing yeah. them off, and then getting on conference calls, occasionally going in. Cool. Um, and then the third is located down in the West Village, which is more convenient for me because I'm in the East Village. So Yeah. I mean, none of it's that far. <laughs> no. None of it. It's all a subway away. This is not LA where it's, uh, God, no, it's spread not. out over. And is that all TV or is it? Is it other um, it's, I, I guess, TV with... Quotes around like it. what is that anymore? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I consider TV anything um, that you can watch as a widget on either your Roku or Apple TV yeah. that then hooks up to that thing that still hangs on your wall, and I think will be there for another, you know, twenty plus years. I think that TV, oh, yeah. although it will evolve, is still going to be the place where you want to watch streaming content. We're gonna need a monitor. We, what's, yeah, what's feed, right. until it's like in our eyeballs but what's, right. what's feeding it is going to be keep changing yeah i mean listen that's not to say that uh, i'm not gonna you know now that uh, netflix has the download function that i'm not going to watch stuff on my you know on my iphone or my ipad yeah, yeah. Um, but you still want that big picture experience for sure and has it has it always been in that realm or was there movies at any point there were, I mean, I, uh, when I first moved here in 98, here uh, being New York, yes, New York, uh, living in Brooklyn, not far from where you are right now, where we are. Um, I, I was a volunteer PA on a indie film, um, called kill by inches. Uh, it was, I, I think it was one of those films that, that had enough to, um, have a crew and, you know, actually look like a real production, but yeah. I, but I think you know most of the PAs were working for free, and well, I was going to say volunteer PA rates. is a very generous uh, title that you've given. Yeah, I was I was standing on the corner of uh, this uh, barren landscape in Greenpoint, which I'm sure now is bustling. Oh with yeah, activity. no, but in, in the '90s, man, yeah, and uh, totally different. I would have to lock up locations, um, even though we were shooting interiors. It was supposed to be this tailor's workshop, and the windows were open, and you know there was noise that could come in. But I had to stand out there. There was not a person in sight, and uh, I learned the term "lock it up," which was you know right before we're <laughs> shooting, you know, in speed. Okay, lock it up. And I realized that, you know, for after day three, this was, there was a no one to do that too. Job, yeah. Right? It's like, maybe I should uh, look into some other opportunities. That's funny. Well, I mean, that was right after school. I, so that, that was after, yeah, it was, but I, I took a beat um, to, I ended up going to South America on a one way ticket to I, Santiago. I did that to Brazil. No kidding. Yeah. That's, yeah. I, I want to hear all about your experience. I lived there for two years, uh, working on my own film projects, which I eventually made a documentary, and then that brought me back here, and then Amazing. I kept going. But, I probably would have met you in Brazil. 
uh, if I hadn't have been, uh, I had a visa that was limited from 90 days to 30 days because I had been working in Chile. And when I ended up applying for that visa, they're like, oh, this guy's working in Chile. We're not going to give him a, a uh, yeah. Yeah. So I would have stayed in Brazil had I been was able that, to. Was this stuff after college? It was. So I graduated from Tufts near Boston. For film? They didn't have a film program. They had, uh, no, it was liberal arts. Um, Did I was, you have uh, an interest at the time in like film industry or were you still just figuring it out? I was still figuring Tufts it out. Tufts is a great place to figure it out. Yeah, it was. And I was, I, you know, at the time, if you had asked me, I probably would have told you that I was going to school to get an education and have a degree. But really what I wanted to do was play music. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. I played in bands when I was in college and we did some touring what kind of stuff uh it was it was a it was an eclectic mix of it was rock okay but you know there was this was also the 90s it was in the 90s i think we were grunge maybe you know, there were probably a couple songs there that, some that plaid maybe, being worn on yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. But I, I would say there was probably uh, as an analog, it was probably more in the Chili Peppers like uplift mofo party plan. Cool. <laughs> yeah, um, but there was you know it was like rock, punk, reggae, some jazz, you know, experimentation, uh, puppet show. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but it was a lot of fun, and you know, we ended up, you know, we played some of the big venues there. We did. Um, a few shows out of town and well, was, you were considering this being I was considering it as life. a sort of year almost like a gap year after college and then the whole thing imploded um, as I, sometimes as bands, it does bands, yeah yes do. yes it was uh, there was a, it was a volatile mix mm-hmm. fortunately I, I did not die in a bizarre gardening accident but uh, <laughs> got your blessings yes the band uh, just yeah fell apart and I ended up moving back to Virginia to Reston which is where I grew up and was doing various jobs trying to figure out what I really wanted to do and I, I should say that I did a, a film internship when I was at Tufts even though I was a creative writing major you know an English major which essentially meant that I was getting a liberal arts education learning yeah, how to pretty, think analyze write totally yeah um, but that could be to the benefit of a certain mind well in yeah I, I mean I would say today first and foremost I'm a storyteller and when yeah. I was when I was it's, the connection's still there that's right when I was declaring a major I had taken a, a creative writing class that really sort of got my blood pumping you know it was something that really inspired me I was able to tap into I think this this period of my life when uh, there's just a lot of vibrant material to work with, and it happened to be my childhood growing up, and it sort of included this this uh, brother who I kept trying to connect with, and he was really kind of distant and sometimes abusive. Oh, well. uh, not this is not getting heavy. We're very good friends, now, but abusive in the way that older brothers can. Oh, be. all right, yeah, yeah. Enough uh, enough for some material to write about. Yes. By the way, my brother and I are on very good terms, and we gotcha. have, we have uh, sort of figured out we've worked through the uh, issues that we had as kids, and he's a he's a wonderful guy. Um, but uh, I think it was just a time where I was able to just tap into these stories, what seemed like an endless well, and mm-hmm. create this character that was the reverse name of my best friend growing up. His name was Jay Toby, and I called him Toby Toby Jameson. And um, I wrote all of these short stories that ended up becoming a screenplay. And, uh, and how I, old were you when this was happening? That was 20, 21. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the, there's this has been wanting to create in this vein for 
quite a long time. I, I loved telling stories. And yeah. I, I think once I found my voice creatively and I had a great advisor and um, sort of a mentor within the English department named Jonathan Strong, who was a novelist who I really admired, um, he, you know, he said, this is you found your voice. This is it. Stick with this sort of group of characters for a little while. Don't go trying to write what you don't know. Um, yeah. You know, well, hey, play having with that this. type of mentorship in the beginning, especially just encouragement yeah. to know that it's it's worth continuing to do. That's right. And even when you went down, after this, you went down to South America. Yeah. So in between, I did a, a internship at a, um, it, it was with a documentarian in his home in Newton, Mass, which was probably, you know, half hour from Medford, where I was in Boston area. And um, he had done a lot of work for WGBH, which was the um, PBS affiliate in the Boston area. Cool. I think it was GBH. That's okay. Yeah. NET is the one in New York. Yeah. In any case, um, he was the first person who I'd worked with that really sort of gave me an appreciation for the documentary form. Um, and also seeing that it's more that, that writing skills are definitely needed. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, he had been embedded with this family. Uh, they were a farm family in Nebraska, and their farm was about to be foreclosed on. This was 97, mm -hmm. I think. Um, it was right after a drought, and they were going through really hard times. They had a, a few kids, uh, three kids, and um, it really chronicled this period from you know, the, the beginning of, I think the sort of the beginning of the downfall as the farmer is trying to keep it together. And his wife was really the backbone who made this business work and made the farm become something that actually could sustain itself. Um, more importantly, I think it was about their relationship and holding it together uh, during this time of stress. How were you, how were you involved? What were you doing for it? Yeah. So I was logging footage, you know, I was gotcha. basically logging interviews. Um, but was I that... saw that this was, yeah, this was another form of storytelling that I wasn't as familiar with. And, um, it really, I think it got under my skin. I ended up working with him for, it was just a, a few months, but it sounds like it could be pretty enlightening, especially like logging material is so hard. And arduous and tedious, but you know there are eureka moments like twenty hours in, where all of a sudden you see what this movie can be. That's right, and then it aired on PBS and was one of the highest rated. It was a three part Frontline. It was it was oh, a wow. three a three part documentary, six and a half hours, I think, that aired within sort of the Frontline franchise. That's amazing, and especially th back then. Yeah, no, it was, it, and it was. I think it, over the course of the broadcast, got some like you know 18 million viewers and it really struck a chord with america it was um not just about the farming aspect of of it and running a business but also keeping family the, dynamics. the relationship alive during yeah. you know difficult times and so they got i mean email was around at that point because i think it just i just gotten my first AOL account, right? 97. <laughs> and they got 60,000 letters and emails. Wow. Yeah, from people. Well, what did that do for you in terms of the mental? Was there any sort of mental shift or evolution because you're starting to see that your skills can be applied in ways you hadn't even thought of previous to yeah, this project? I, I don't think it was something I immediately realized. I think it was something I probably just put in my back pocket and said, okay, let's, yeah. 
let's come back to that at some point. And then when I ended up going to South America, I, you know, I ended up linking, uh, I was working as a first grade co-teacher at yeah, this very yeah. prestigious school. I had we all some... taught English <laughs> at some point yeah. if you're living abroad. Yeah, my just... English was more, they, they were uh, six and seven year olds. And so this was their introduction to English. And I was the co-teacher. Um, and apparently in their 150 something year history, they had never had a male co-teacher because it just wasn't. Wow. Yeah. So they would call me Mies, which for, you know, for Miss, um, Mies Ephum. Uh, Mies, right? And, and eventually I had to correct them and I was Meester. Um, but they never got the Ethan. It was Ephum. So Meester Ephum really, uh, <laughs> that was, that was where, uh, I realized that, I loved kids, but I didn't necessarily want to be doing that for a living. No. Um, in the meantime, Super uh, hard work. It was I tied a lot of shoes. Uh, <laughs> I was done with my day at one thirty, and so oh, that's great. Yeah, and so I was doing all sorts of creative stuff, linking up with some kids, you know, my age, twenty one, twenty two, uh, who were at film school, and we were playing around. And I mean, it was the technology was so limited, especially down especially, there. Yeah, it was yeah. limited in general. And then you're in Chile. Yeah, they actually had at the. Chilean film school uh they had a Steenbeck that was how they were oh man yeah that's how they were editing so this was way before Avid and digital technology at least had made it into the schools down there and so you know we do some projects and I was uh this is kind of embarrassing but um I would actually play buckets in the park there because uh I didn't have my drums with me and I was down there with a backpack and I you know drums were obviously an important part of my life oh so it was, you played drums in that band yes I did gotcha so you you were playing. You were you were one of the bucket dudes. I played buckets in, in the, the park. park. Yeah, and, and they, those yeah. are great experiences. Well, and especially so that, in Santiago, this was. That's right. And yeah. this guy who was a filmmaker, expat, who had uh, he had a sixteen millimeter camera. He did a short doc on me, which uh, you like can't avoid the film stuff. <laughs> It finds really it. It kept yeah, coming yeah, in behind my life. the camera, in front of the camera. Um, I've only showed that doc to a handful of people who still make fun of me to this day. Oh, but, I'm sure. Uh, that is yeah, a but my wife got to see. That's when I knew she really loved me. Yeah, that's it. Um, yes. So yeah, so when I came back, I backpacked for a while, and you know, part of the reason I was down there is I didn't get to do that year abroad in Maybe college. Yeah, so I just kind of promised myself that I would do it on my own, and you know nice. what ended up. I was thinking it would be six months and ended up being a year and a half mm -hmm. and um, eventually came back feeling like, A, I had learned Spanish outside of a, a classroom setting right on. Um, and really sort of baked it in. And um, B, I felt like I had for a moment really sort of taken care of the wanderlust that uh, I had had and could settle down and actually work my ass off for uh, you know, however long to establish myself within a career. And that's when you got back and you did, were doing, as you put it, volunteer PAing? That's right. The first job was this Kill by Inches. Now, um, when we you were one, getting into it, was yeah. it because when you had said yes to that, you were like, I want to be in, in film? Like, why are you PAing in general? What, what so was the decision? There were, there were three things that I wanted to do. And I had one person, uh, my dad was a government employee. My mom was a social worker. We lived in Virginia. We didn't really have a lot of industry connections, but there was one person my dad grew up with in Portland, Maine, um, one of his best friends who 
was working for Time Warner Cable, and he was a big exec there. And so he used to go golfing with some of these other network execs. And so when I told him, he's like, what do you, what do you want to do? You know, this is uh, dear friend Ted. Ted says, you know, so Ethan, what do you want to do with your life now? And I said, I, you know, I think I want to work either in the music business, which at the time was in a tailspin yeah um, or it was about to go into a tailspin yeah, you, it was good, 90 good, good on you for not riding eight. that way yeah um or i want to work for a, a tv network or get into film somewhere or another but this idea of sort of visual storytelling this idea of being able to marry sort of image to music was also very interesting to me yeah yeah and then um i ended up going on a bunch of interviews uh, i think i was still living in virginia at the time and everyone was just, they turned out to be informational interviews and there were no real jobs but it was a courtesy to ted and then i realized you know this wasn't going to happen unless i moved to new york and just you know tried to make it and yeah. so i moved up stayed on my Did friend's couch for a couple of what, of what making it looked like making, making it for me at the time was landing a job that paid yeah right and and maybe having my own not my own but an apartment where i wasn't sleeping on somebody's couch right yeah 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 short short term making <laughs> yeah day-to-day -day making yes was there getting fed and sleeping on a real bed was there was there at that time bigger goals in mind like were you the, dreaming Oh, definitely. Yeah, I what mean, I would watch. Like? I well, ironically, I ended up, or I guess it's not at all ironic. I I ended up um, fulfilling one of those dreams. I just it it was in a very roundabout way. So let me sure. get to that. Yeah. Um. So I ended up when I moved to New York and was doing the you know the volunteer paing. Um, I also realized that I had to make some money. I was living on my friend's couch. I wanted to, you know, sublet a place with some other friends where I could actually pay a monthly rent. And I got into, although I did not get a job through any of those interviews that I did, I did get into the temp pool for Viacom. So the temp pool was essentially somebody, an executive assistant goes on vacation and they call into the temp pool and there are, you know, 20 to 30 people who have been pre-approved to then keep your spot, answer phones, you know, make sure that. So you were doing the, that. So I was doing that. And um, every Tuesday, HR would release. I mean, it was like hot off the presses, right? Because it was, I remember going, you know, at 4.01 p.m. and feeling this stack of Xeroxes that were still warm, you know, because they had just come off uh, the Xerox machine. And in that was every job that was listed within Viacom. And there was one that I think was for, well, there was one for uh, VH1, which at the time was doing... Big deal. Yeah. Well, VH1 was doing music at the time. Pop-up videos, man. It was. It was pop-up. It was, uh, was pop-up video behind the music, storytellers. So here it was... Some of the best storytelling in music. Absolutely. And v the VH was for video hits, and there was a dash, VH-1. Um, which we spent years trying to get rid of that dash. And everyone, whenever they would write about it in the press, would always keep that dash in there. But VH1 was doing music. It was music-centric programming. And here was this opportunity for me to be able to not only work in TV, but also to marry music to that. Yeah, and best of both worlds. It right was. There. So that's where it all got started. Um, so I 
I ended up interviewing with Jane Lipsitz, who uh, you guys know is the producer of Top Chef. She runs a great company in LA called Magical Elves. Yeah, they're huge. They, yeah, they were one of the first companies to really sort of nail reality and figure out how to uh, format television in a way that still felt authentic, even within sort of the you know competition reality space. Um, yeah, so, like Top Chef is respected as a as a competition, let alone being a TV show, which is a really interesting, cool thing to be able to achieve for content. That's right. And her first show was actually Project Greenlight, which same idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, for yeah. for film. Um, and then actually Project Runway came off of that. That's a whole other story. Um, but uh, I was working for her as a departmental assistant, and I spent countless hours in what was called the dub room, mm-hmm. which is where all of these decks, you know, beta decks and digibetas, and I, I swear to God, there were three quarter inch decks there <laughs> for you know certain footage that you yeah. would have to. Well, you were coming up at a time that does not resemble now, technologically speaking, by a long shot. No, I remember when the digibeta was installed in that room yeah oh, before it was the, the beta and yeah. then it was like oh okay no it's the digital version of this <laughs> um but instead of being gray it was blue some of some of you old folks will remember this um you know obviously we're not dealing in uh you know analog or even digibetas for that matter anymore but at the time this was my office i would sit in there and i would do all sorts of comp reels for videos i would lay off interviews i was basically like the go-to guy for any video requests that you had were you at this time obviously it's exciting for you to have in the most basic of ways be taking care of yourself and doing it in the industry in a certain vein but coming from this place of wanting to be a storyteller and a writer were you feeling any tension or anxiety or stress about the fact that you weren't writing and making stories exactly or were you just happy to have a job and it was kind of not that heavy on you um i i think i still i aspired to be more of you know a creative a storyteller and I, I think I did that sort of in my like you know I was journaling at the time I was still trying so to figure out what my too. next screenplay was going to be um even though the first one if I were to look back at it now I mean it was terrible but I completed one you know hey, and, and most people don't get that far. yeah exactly and and so I think I was I was sort of trying to do all of the stuff that I couldn't do during the day. I was doing that in my off hours on the weekend. So I still aspired to it, but I didn't feel like it had to happen immediately. I knew I had to pay my dues. Um, I knew that it was going to be a long road. And to some extent, I was just happy to have gotten my foot in the door. Yeah. So, you know, when we were talking about what did success look like? Well, you know, it shifts as your career develops. At first, it was getting my foot in the door, which I thought was not even a possibility. And, you know, later it was working as a creative exec for MTV. And that happened within a five-year span. Really? Yeah. How do you think... Why did it go so quickly? What were you doing to... Because it's, it's interesting. At this, on one hand, you're saying that you felt content in a good way that like you, didn't, you weren't trying to bite off more than you can chew and you weren't trying to go faster than what like, those around you would view as um, acceptable. But at the same time, you, in five years, you, you made that type of jump. How'd that happen? 
I, concurrently. I never those two mindsets. I never said no to anything or anyone. Um, I I think you know whether it's a misconception or just a stereotype of millennials. Um, you know, I've certainly worked with many millennials who were hard workers and defy the stereotype, which is you just expect to move up quickly and you're you know privileged and you should be doing more creative work than you're being assigned. I didn't, I mean, I guess I knew at some point I wanted to be doing more creative work and more substantial work, but at the time I was just grateful for having that work. So um, I knew that, you know, the only way to rise up within the ranks was to be liked, you know, and to be um, that person to who- To be valuable to people. Yeah. And when I say liked, it was liked as in the person who, well, you know, Ethan will do it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and eventually those things got to be more interesting assignments. Now, responsibilities grew. Absolutely. So case in point, um, my friend Jerry Leo, who now runs uh, all of the programming for Comcast, NBCU Network, so for Bravo, for E!, for, big job. Yeah, it's a big job. <laughs> Considerably large job. It is. Uh, he was an assistant to um, somebody named Jeff Gaspin at the time. And Jeff was, you know, he was the highest ranking programming person at VH1. And this is, again, we're, when we're talking about behind the music, yeah. legends, storytellers. When they were at the, when VH1 was at its biggest. Video. Um, VH1 had reached its peak in terms of music programming and obviously there was a cultural shift in terms of what those channels wanted to achieve right it then became uh sort of it became celeb reality through surreal life but this was before all of that was taking place yeah um Jerry Leo's was uh, working for Jeff Gaspin. He knew that Lauren Zelaznik, who was the senior vice president of programming and development, needed a new assistant. And he basically said, that's the job you want to take. And I looked at him like he was crazy because here I was. I had my freedom in the dub room, which was my domain. Occasionally, I'd get to go on runs to some of the other Viacom buildings, which you know gave me some time outside. Uh, you know, I got to meet with all of these other executives. You know, as I'm like handing off a dub reel to somebody who used to. Run. You enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. You know, and and I knew that there was going to be a next step. I just did not think it was the one that he was proposing. Mm. And what he said to me was, listen, yes, you're going to answer phones. You're going to do you know, travel and expense reports. You're going to be scheduling and rescheduling meetings. But this will be like graduate school and you will learn more during this time than you would in any other position. You'll really get to understand how a network operates. And that came out to be true. It did, yeah. I mean, those were very, very prophetic words. He... um, so he was somebody who uh, he had already been an executive and mm-hmm. had actually taken a job as Jeff's assistant simply to learn more. A guy, this this guy is a he is an incredible resource when it comes to knowledge about television and media in general. Yeah, it's so great. Yeah, and so I wanted to sort of broaden my perspective a bit, and working for Lawrence Lasnik was truly that experience. So I. Did you, you're saying that all of that was to, even when he was saying why it's a good idea, he was saying to learn how a network operates. That's quite different 
than an opportunity to be solely a creative. And that you were you you were down. I, I'm I'm almost positive that I said that same thing to him in some way or another. And I said, no, but I want to be a creative. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm paraphrasing because this was over 15 years ago. Sure. But I'm pretty sure he said something like, listen, you get to learn about how every aspect works. And then you can choose where you want to go. And that was exactly what happened. Yeah. Now, there was a very unexpected thing that took place while I was working for Lauren. So during that time, all of the assignments got to be more interesting. So it wasn't just making you know, comp reels anymore. It was actually listening in on calls because I had, this is sort of an agent's way of doing things. Um, the agent makes sure that the assistant isn't on every call. You're listening in so that if the boss wants you to send something out or to take notes on the call, you're doing all that. And then she can just sort of say, okay, so did you get all that? And she doesn't have to brief you. It's just a much more efficient way of yeah, doing yeah. things. Rolling calls as well. Um, during that time, I, you know, we were talking, she, she came from the world of film. She was a producer on Kids, um, worked with Larry Clark. She had sort of somehow gotten sucked into this cable world, but was doing really creative work. She had um, launched the movie of the week business. She had basically gotten our first theatrical film off the ground, which was, well, I'll get to that. So there was an award show, it was VH1 Vogue Fashion Awards. And like the VMAs for MTV, Mm -hmm. this was a tentpole event where every year we would parade out, you know, fashion and music and, you know, celebrate. It was VH1's gala for the year. That's right. And each year there were these short films, these parodies, you know, satires of the fashion industry that uh, were produced often out of house. Uh, Oh, yeah, always. And there was one in particular that was about a male model who was ridiculously good looking but couldn't turn left on the runway and that model was Derek Zoolander yeah right and so um through that there I were, didn't realize that's where that story got born out of yeah it did that's great I had no idea and there was an SNL writer named Drake Sather who uh I think worked with Ben to create the character and Ben loved the character decided to develop it into a feature I think it was at Fox first and eventually went into turnaround. Lauren realized that this was a great asset for not only VH1, but for Paramount mm-hmm. and uh, encouraged John Sykes, who was running the network at the time, to chase after this for Paramount and that this should be, you know, here we were doing all of these made for TV movies. This could be our first theatrical release that, you know, VH1 was tied to and ultimately worked. And she came back. Uh-huh. From the first day of dailies, and I mean, it should have been VH ones, considering we're going yeah, of course, out of yeah, it. that's that's the right that was right. Well, it was VH one's first and only theatrical release, um, successful? Yeah, I, yeah, I guess at the time it, it wasn't really. I mean, I think at the box office it didn't. Oh. It was the first film. Sorry, it was the first comedy to be released after nine eleven, and it oh, just wow. was not. That timing, right? Well, someone had to do it. Uh, But it became a cult classic. Yeah, it did. Without question. Yeah. So she came back. I'd been on her desk for probably about a year and a half at that point. And she came back from screening dailies and said, hey, do you want to go work for Ben Stiller? And this was a day that started like any other day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it ended up becoming something very different within, you know, 24 hours, a meeting with Stuart Kornfeld, who was his head of production at Red Hour. 
and or his executive producer at Red Hour. Um, and within 48 hours, I'm in Ben's trailer um, right before. With Ben. Yeah. She, you know, as he's interviewing me and he, you know, he looked at me and he said, uh, do I know you? we met before and i said we've definitely not met before but <laughs> and yeah and literally within i think 72 hours i was on set completely immersed in the production world of zoolander so as in what role exactly i was so he had a few personal assistants mm-hmm. um, and i think he had maybe an office assistant back in la for his red hour stuff but he was directing co-writing producing and starring in this film and so he was pulled in a lot of different directions yeah um and he needed somebody to sort of be his liaison between all of the departments and that was you yeah so i was i was his production assistant not a production assistant no no but that's this is i mean the title doesn't really give it dude like the proper under the weight of what you were doing that's right um, in terms of being that linchpin for everything, that that's also another in- intense boot camp of how it all works. Oh, yeah. And we, At and the it, highest levels, too. It was surreal. I mean, again, within days of feeling like, okay, I, maybe I need to move on from my job. I, mean, I certainly had said to Lauren, hey, I'm thinking about the next thing. So She's this like, was, okay, here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This could work. Yeah. Um, so, again, within days of this, I'm hanging out and Owen Wilson you know, is looking over at Ben's lunch and realizing that he has this elaborate lunch that he doesn't have. And so Owen would come over and be like, hey, man, do you know how I can get one of those? (laughs) (laughs) And next thing you know, I'm like talking to Owen Wilson and uh, Will Ferrell and David Bowie's on set. And Winona Ryder is telling me about these great little green vitamins that I should be taking that can help boost your immune system. So it was a completely, for lack of a better word, surreal experience. Yeah. And as that's going on, obviously, I'm assuming the first couple of weeks, you're just floating trying to like get a grip on things moving forward a little bit where do you think all of this is going to lead where are you hoping all of this leads well i think this is where i realized what jobs were interesting to me on a film set and which ones i wouldn't want or just wasn't qualified for right so yeah i mean listen there are the the grips and the cinematographers as you well know you are you're a dp yeah 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 yeah, so I'm looking at them and I'm like, okay, that's fucking amazing. They're they're working with the director to set the shot and the look and you know, and and that was interesting to me, but I realized that I'm not, you know, I don't have the skill to be a cinematographer. So there were only a couple jobs that I think were really interesting to me. And mm-hmm. one of those was director and the other one was the producer. Now I guess you could say It's uh, interesting that both interested you because of how quite different both role, skill set, tasks I mean, they're, they're two wildly different positions. At the end of the run, I don't think I was cut out for set life. Gotcha. Like, I, I spent... Why? Um, I think I knew that it felt like a, almost like a nomadic existence. Certainly. We, yeah, I mean, we moved around, and we were probably, I don't know, 40 different locations from, you know, shooting in uh, these old dilapidated mines in rural Pennsylvania to these industrial buildings out in Yonkers that we were shooting for, uh, you know, the the runway scene, to areas where I, I just, I felt like we were always on the move. And for this particular job, um, I was always on call. Now, granted, I was just an assistant, but everything felt like it was an emergency. 
Um, and I kind of, yes. yeah, that, that is the feeling. Yeah. And, and I kind of like the idea of things being more thoughtful. Now, listen, if I were the writer of that film, if I were, you know, John Hamburg, who came in later, who got to sort of craft all of these great characters and dialogue and then be on set to help. Um, and I know this isn't always the case with writers, but he was a special case and, you know, he ended up becoming a director himself. Um, you know, I, I would have said that's great. You know, you get to actually be creative in a reasonable, you know, reasonable timeline with deadlines. This just seemed like everything was a bit chaotic. And I think with this particular production, um, there were a lot of things working against it. And, you know, they had signed off on a budget that was much lower than it should have been for this film. And I think... Find but, me a film that doesn't think that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but Ben had certainly called in favors to gotcha. all of his, yeah, yeah. you know, to his family, both Ann Mira and Jerry Stiller were in it and all of the cameos that happened. And and I think at some point it just, it sort of became uh, so chaotic that the bondsman actually had to come on set to make sure. I, I didn't know what a bondsman was, but a bondsman is somebody who makes sure that the film is running on time um, and that you're, you're making your days so that it doesn't go into an overage. And my um, guess is that the studio is hiring the bondsmen to make sure that they're not. Things were in. getting pretty serious yeah. when you see the bondsmen on set. I just. It, I can understand that you're like what, looking at a stress train wreck in a, in a certain I was. And, and I think, if anything, I, it wasn't that I didn't want to be in film. I just didn't want to be the guy who was on set. Like, I would have loved that to. That anxiety. Have, yeah. I would have loved to have written the film and then potentially, you know, been involved in some higher level producer capacity and you know listen I've, I've I've certainly done that on documentary films but this it just for whatever reason it wasn't something that I knew I had to pursue if there were some other opportunity that arose that was in the film industry this and, all makes sense yeah but because no, I've been sitting here thinking about this you know conversation we were going to have today and I just kept wondering especially because someone that is in development and clearly cares about creative things I always wonder if you care about that level of creative how does someone how is someone in in development and your position versus being on set um, and being that person and this is a clear this is the clear answer yeah I, I think I like having a little bit more order um, and certainly, you know, film sets can be run like military operations and ADs are incredible at keeping the trains running on time. But in terms of creative production and generating ideas, I sort of like, I think, the comfort of an office and of a place where I could walk outside uh, of an office and it's the hallway discussion, right? It's like, hey, guys, I had this idea. What do you think of this? And then it becomes sort of this conversation, a collaboration about um, an idea that may or may not become actualized. Well, yeah, because I was going to say, when you said order, of course you're talking about order in the creative parts of your life, the working parts of your life, but uh, it also provides an order in your the totality of your life, yeah. being a, norm, a more standard Monday through Friday office job that allows you to be creative, but it's very much, there's order to your life. That's right. And, and again, I don't think this shaped, I don't think... <laughs> 
It's a very strange statement. I don't think Zoolander shaped my experience or my outlook on film and set life. Um, but it had there were implications to that during the three or four months that I was working. I was probably eighteen hour days. Yeah, because it wasn't even it wasn't union for me. I mean, the film was union, but I wasn't. Right. So you know, I would be the first person on first set. First in, last out. Yeah, exactly. And it ended a relationship that I actually really cared about. Now there may have been other issues with that relationship, but um, it made me realize that it was going to be very difficult to sustain a normal existence living that sort of life. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you're put into positions like that, You that's when you really, you know, you, you only really understand the rubric of your value system when it's being pushed. Yeah, and, and listen, I would not have traded that for anything. I mean, in some ways, it feels like it was this weird memory. There are a couple of people who I still keep in touch with and who I'm very close with from that film where I was like, did that, did that really happen? Like, we'll, we'll yeah. talk about a story. And it's like, that happened, right? And my friend Like Edith, a fever dream. Yeah, yeah, is saying, yeah, no, that was a very strange day. Um, so... Where'd you go then? So, how, so, how, that, where did, so then so, I, I went back to VH1, but as a segment producer. Stepped up, leveled yeah, up. Yeah, leveled up. I was working on uh, the 100 Greatest specials so oh the, yeah those yeah, were awesome man it was like the hundred greatest oh yeah i remember all of, them. of all time hundred greatest women in rock you guys were ahead of the curve on lists wonders yes we were all about the listicles way before buzzfeed yeah even, oh yeah you know, even a glimmer in someone's eye um so i did that there was a massive shift uh, just a regime change that took place where it was really it was rethinking the way that we were programming and uh there were three or four teams that were assigned different roles within the company and my boss at the time was looking to bring in people who had some sort of development experience and he knew that i worked for Lawrence lasnik who many people know as lz in the industry and so i think he saw me as an asset and that was sort of the rise as a, you know, started my rise as a junior executive, you know, on the development team yeah. to ultimately, you know, get me to where I am now. Yeah. And that must have, it's funny, you know, it sounds like that project, it's in certain ways, the Zoolander project, in certain ways it put an end to some ideas that you might have had about what you could be in, in the industry, but it, it really just showed you the path that you should go down. Yeah. Yeah, and then it, that lets you like have an open mind and like maybe more enthusiastic about the opportunities as it kept going. Cause like it would have changed your entire discussion that you had with, with the guy who said you should be the assistant. Cause now you're like, yes, I want to do all of these things. Was there, a, did you notice an internal shift that when you were then doing development type work that there was like this new fully engaged person because you knew this is really what you wanted to do and that you had that confirmed internally? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so I feel like I've spent a lot of time on the early years. I'm going to shift to sort of the beginning of what was my development career. Yeah. You know, that was what sort of got me established. Let me go on this wild fact finding mission you know, to help me craft the next stage. And then, you know, once things fell into place, it was a pretty clear trajectory, at least in my mind. Um, and by no means a meteoric rise, but there were, at that point, I knew which rungs I had to climb. To you get. saw it. Yeah. You yeah, saw it was, a lo the longer, right. longer, longer road. 
So what became clear is that I loved working in different genres, you know, whether it was no longer just doing music. We were also trying out game shows. We were trying out animated series. We did something with uh, Joel Stein, who at the time was um, writing for Time magazine. And uh, we did an animated series about him sort of being this, he was a VJ who would always ask these inappropriate questions of celebrities, you know, at this fictitious network that was based on VH1. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I was getting, getting my hands into all of these different genres and realizing that this was a great opportunity to be able to collaborate with smart executives and people who loved making television. And it did feel like, I mean, it, it felt like the golden age of VH1 and you know, later MTV. It was just a really exciting time. Um, so I ended up eventually going to MTV to work for Tony DeSanto and Liz Gately, um, who were expanding this department. They needed a director of development, and they had just started producing a show called Laguna Beach, which was essentially a reality show that looked like a scripted teen drama and yeah, all, that was revolutionary that it was in the sense whether you liked it or not yeah. um you know tony had i'm this, not saying revolutionary from a fan's perspective <laughs> it, it wasn't something that i tuned into every week but i can appreciate that sure. it changed the landscape for sure it did and and tony's idea behind that was let's strip away the conventions of documentary or docu-series yeah. let's not do this sort of run and gun handheld style let's only shoot beautiful sort of locked off you know highly composed um, shots and let's do away with interviews you know these to camera testimonials or as we called them you know in the real world there are confessionals yeah. you know where you're basically talking to camera about what happened let's just get rid of those and see if we can create something that looks like a drama that you would have seen on the CW at the time. It sounds like often in your career, you were at the table for a conversation that shifted an entire genre. That's happened multiple times. Uh, yeah, I feel like my timing was fortuitous. I certainly had nothing to do with the development of that. That was Liz and Tony, 100%, um, and, and somebody named Adam DeVello. But I was sitting in, and I won't take credit for that show or for The Hills for right, that matter, right, right. but I was sort of a part of this creative team as things were shifting. When when stuff like that comes out and maybe even years later when it you see its impact and it's being copied and it's become a new standard, how do you feel about being connected to stuff like that and realizing the weight? It almost reminds me of like, um, I don't know I, where this thought came from, but it reminds me of that scene in Devil Wears Prada where she's talking about the color blue mm -hmm. and how like you don't even realize that on your $15 Target dress, like we thought of the color blue. I mean, because what's crazy is that in a sense, and you brought it up, like Laguna Beach also affect, forget affecting reality TV only, it affected documentary on a broad scale. I, I would say that MTV in general was deciding what was going, it was dictating what was going to be cool in the sense that, you know, here we are talking about about Devil Wars Prada, MTV was the arbiter of cool. And you sitting at home as a 15-year-old girl or a 17-year-old in Wisconsin was waiting to see what the next trends were going to be. 
everything shifted when YouTube was born and all of a sudden kids could make their own content. There was a democratization of technology in terms of being able to utilize anything, whether it was, you know, a you know, PD-150, some sort yeah, of you yeah. know, oh, yeah. cheap digital camera that you could use. You could edit your software on your Mac at home and create something that was straight from the mind of that 17-year-old. And I think kids started to realize, wow, we don't really need to listen to these 30, 40-somethings in New York City who are sitting around a boardroom deciding what they're going to you know, send to us as uh, the missive for what the new trends are going to be. We can actually create those trends. It's really interesting. I'm glad we're talking about this because when everyone talks about the internet and the democratization of it and that they're, you know, the people high up top aren't... um in control of it anymore. It's fascinating talking to someone who was in that position. Like what was there, what was it like watching this unfold, seeing potentially the power either shifting or slipping or something in between? It was, I mean, it was cool because, you know, here we were realizing that there was a major shift in the way that content was being not only produced, but broadcast. Um, So I think it's always, it's always exciting to be living in a time of a, you know, an industrial or technological revolution, right? Even if you're on the side that it's shifting away from? Yeah. I mean, listen, if I were running the network, I may have had different feelings about that. That makes sense. And certainly, you know, they were major, you can read about this and certain books that came out 10, 15 years ago about how, you know, certain, I guess I can just name who the people were. I mean, Sumner Redstone was very upset about the fact that Tom Freston did not end up buying MySpace. And I think there were a lot of executives who were, you know, in charge of making sure that MTV stayed on top, who were probably not too happy about the fact that things were changing at a rapid clip. Right. Um, I wasn't so high up. your position, though, in terms of just creative development. We were figuring out how to work with these kids. We were like, oh, look at that guy who just made this, you know, like... Doing it as an opportunity. Yeah, there was something called Easter Bunny Hates You. Um, (laughs) And and it was a guy who uh, shot this sort of almost like a jackass-style uh, sabotage-like video of a guy dressed up in an Easter Bunny suit who was going around wreaking havoc on this small town. And it was hilarious. I mean, it was dark humor, but it was really funny and creative and different. And I remember calling that guy up and saying, hey, man, what do you want to do? Now, I don't know if anything I ended up leaving shortly after to go uh, to the sell side of things to become a you know, a development exec at a production company, because that to me was actually really interesting, not having to develop for a single brand, but being able to create a portfolio of content that you could then sell to various networks. We can get into that in a moment. But, you know, we looked at it, the guys who were creating the pilots and generating ideas and, you know, trying to find the next hit for MTV, we looked at it as an opportunity to work with these younger people. Yeah, you were just seeing, it was almost like the zeitgeist was talking back to you, showing you what it wanted to do next. That's right. So it was just, you know, we were trying to hold a mirror up to it and say, okay, well, what if we were to reflect what is happening on the internet, but with a slightly higher production value? How do we elevate this and give these kids, listen, this is what they did with $2,000 or $500. Think what they could do with $150,000. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the natural, that's the proper response. I mean that like, how else can you view it really? 
that's actually how um, that's how Human Giant came about. I was working with an executive named Sam Grossman, who was really tapped into the comedy world, and he found this guy um, who had a website. It was called Aziz's Board. And Aziz and his friends were making these short videos, comedic videos, um, and just putting them up online. And Aziz, of course, went on to great fame and, you know, clearly doesn't need MTV anymore. But at the time, Human Giant was the vehicle that allowed him and Rob Hubel and Paul Shear to broadcast this beyond a smaller sort of audience that was only checking out Aziz's website. This was now, you know, as MTV still had some clout, it was putting real dollars behind their creative and letting them essentially do what they were doing on the internet, but for TV. I didn't, so we can, you can view Aziz as one of the first internet stars to go mainstream in a Uh, way. Interesting. I mean, Jackass, I guess those guys too. Yeah, I mean, I'm just. But Aziz has taken it to a different level of stardom than Jackass for sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what Johnny Knoxville's Q rating is uh, right, against right. diseases, but Jackass was different. I mean, I think Jackass was doing it in the age of camcorders, right? Yeah. And you know, somehow cobbling together what were these absurd low rent videos that just blew your mind. Um, Aziz was actually crafting comedy, right? By yeah, way, the, of- the content is a totally different thing. Between the two of them. Yeah, Yeah. it's true. Um, So there was obviously the YouTube revolution and then how that affected what you were talking about at MTV and then also Netflix and where we are now as someone who is working in this realm. Right now, I was just wondering how you find this new um, advanced democratization in a way, uh, or at least, I don't don't even know if you'd call it a democratization because it is kind of flowing to just two bigger entities and, you know, Netflix and Amazon and places like that. Maybe just the delivery system is different and the mindset around funding is different. Is it another situation where because you're not running any organization, you're you're just creative development wherever good creative ideas are, are you just viewing it as another opportunity the way that you did with, with YouTube? How do you view it all from where you sit? So right now, there are a lot of conversations that are taking place around Netflix and how these streaming giants are coming in and completely upending the traditional cable business and broadcast networks as well. Um, I think a lot of those network execs are somewhat concerned, um, maybe fearful that, that, uh, that streaming OTTs are going to eat their lunch. Um, I think it's a valid concern. But for content creators, this is an incredible opportunity. This is a great time for anybody who makes content, who wants to take chances, who wants to do something smarter than what you would normally see on you know, primetime in cable or in broadcast. Um, it's sort of an interesting period because all of the cable nets are acknowledging that their numbers aren't what they used to be two, three, five years ago. And everyone understands that there is a shift. There's a correction that is taking place within the industry during this time. Listen, it's never easy to get a series greenlit. It's never easy to get a series renewed, but I think networks are looking at certain series and saying, listen, it may not have done the prerequisite million viewers on the premiere that we need but it's more content in the library. That's right. It's more content in the library. It's uh, It did great 
in sort of the L3s and L7s, which is three days after and seven days after because people are watching it on demand when they want to. Um, it's something that is a, a prestige play for our network where, you know, not everybody has a show that is being written about in the New York Times. You know, ultimately, the New York Times is not the audience for 95% of the country, but there is something to be said for getting a glowing review in the New York Times or, you know, another highbrow publication. What I think is interesting at this very moment is that you can have shows that completely reinvent a format and nobody really knows if they're a success or not. Let's take um, let's take Chef's Table. Okay. Chef's Table is something that serves a very niche audience. Yeah. These are foodies. It serves me. I love it. I I think it's one of the most amazing yeah. shows on television, it's, and it. it's so well shot. Yeah, and and you know we're focusing on the premier mm-hmm. chefs around the world. I mean, these are the experts who have all come up with, you know, their own sort of style of cooking, of creating, of being, you know, true pioneers in their field. And anyway, with something like Chef's Table, no one knows how many people are watching it. Yeah, right. So it's considered a hit. Because you and your friends are talking about it and can't wait for the next season to come out. But if you were to look at the metrics, which Netflix would never release, my guess is that it's only doing a fraction of the numbers that say uh, hit food. Well, it's interesting, though, because it's 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 redefining how we view success, because if they were to release the numbers, maybe we could sit here and talk about, well, it's not successful because look at these numbers. But at the same time, there is a section of people who I would assume they have a sense of taste and style and they love it because it is of a certain high aesthetic and it does a good job telling stories and it's telling stories of interesting people. And it's like, where, how are we defining success moving forward and why, you know, in the past numbers has been it. It's numbers. Numbers tell all. Numbers say if it's a good or bad, but this, we're entering a world where we're like, I don't know if that's the be all and end all. Because if, if you're making money anyway, and if the whole idea was to get numbers for advertising to make money, and that's why that was the arbiter before, now it's like, well, that's not. So we can change well, what our definition. Well, that's right. And I think with OTT, it's really to, to gain subscribers, right? So you know, all of a sudden you have this wealth of content, probably only 2% of which you or any other consumer are watching on a weekly basis. But- there is a show for you out there. And so I think that's the idea is it's like if we can make people feel, and this is, you know, I'm sure it's Netflix's philosophy. It's probably some of the others that are up and coming. If we can make you feel like this is the one-stop shop for anything, regardless of who you are, yeah, then what do you need all that other stuff for? So, you know, I think for the first time ever, people are actually experimenting with shows that they or documentaries that they never would have watched. Mm -hmm. I think there's Mm -hmm. some statistic that says of the millions, however many millions of Netflix users, you know, each of them, 90% of them have watched at least one documentary. You couldn't say that about 10 years ago. And especially now it's like, are we making enough? Is there enough stuff in our library that 10 bucks a month is worth it to you? Because if the answer is yes, and that's a low relatively speaking, a low barrier to entry fiscally, then, you know, everything's gravy. 
That's right. I mean, let's look at, and I am not an economist by any means, yeah. but um, there are also some some issues with, I think, sort of the longer term play. I and mean, if you look at Netflix's business six seven years ago, um, it was mainly. I mean, it was one hundred percent sending. DVDs, DVDs in the mail, in the mail and <laughs> you can imagine the margins were great. It's like, yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, I don't, it was like all you needed to do was ship out some DVDs to you know anywhere USA from a warehouse, and you were making whatever it was, seven dollars a month um, off of that subscriber. Now they're dumping billions yeah. with a B, billions of dollars into making that content, and. It's, you know, you and I know it's not easy to make content. It's not easy to make great content, let alone content uh, that is, you know, feeding a hungry beast. So I think, you know, time will tell if that model does prove to be as successful now that they're investing in something that is outside, what was outside of their core business. But Lord knows they've created, I could say, probably a handful, 12, maybe even 15 of my favorite programs, both uh, fiction and nonfiction yeah. in the past three years. So they're doing it pretty well. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's really quite an interesting time, especially. And then, you know, they're inspiring someone like Amazon to throw their hat in the ring in bigger ways. And it's just you see uh, a huge shift shaking up the entire foundations of the studio system to a degree. It's nothing that's catastrophic right now, but I mean, who knows what the landscape is going to look like in a decade? Who knows? You know, but I, again, reiterating this idea of TV being anything that you can play on that device mm -hmm. on your wall. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we could also call TV something you watch on your iPad or, or, you know, on your smartphone. But TV is going to exist in 15, 20 years. It's just going to be distributed through a very different means, whether it's a skinny bundle or some other uh, streaming device that you're using. I think the real concern is for the cable companies who are saying, Shh, you know, I don't yeah. know if I don't know if these consumers are going to want to spend 70, 80, 120 dollars on a bunch of channels that they're not watching and yeah. that they don't feel are necessarily speaking to them. But you are sitting there as the uh, creative development consultant, freelancing your way around ideas and uh, organizations that are willing to bring those ideas to life. It's a great place to be. Yeah, seriously. And a great, I feel like it's it's a really exciting time to be doing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like we could just keep talking about this and the ramifications of the uh, the variables in play in the current state of things. But it's been a real pleasure talking and getting to understand how, I mean, how you got here because it's it, it wasn't understood. It was a lot of things just kept kind of happening in an educated way until you landed here. Yeah, it's. Uh, What's that quote that John Lennon used to have? Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. There you go. I, I, sometimes I, I feel like circumstance dictates, you know, a role in your career and you just have to be very observant of what some of these, uh, you know, what some of these signs and opportunities are and you make a decision around that. Um, I feel like I have a whole another second act that I've yet to explore, and I can't wait to see you know what that ends up being. Right on, man. Well, maybe we'll we'll have you back to talk about uh, the state of things once you figure out what they are. I would love that. All right, man. Thanks so much. Thank you. Pleasure.